You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. So there's a few things I have learned during this course of self-isolation these past couple of weeks. And the first is that I think we have been going through standing in line all wrong this whole time. I think it has taken a global pandemic for us to finally figure out how to properly stand in line with one another. I don't know if you've been to the store recently, but they've got the tape like marked out so that you have six feet of space between each person, which I think is incredible. I've always wanted this. Now we don't have to like press in on each other to be the first one to get towards the register and like try and scoot around and grab that little blocker between the conveyor belt and put like that between our groceries. Now we just, we have six feet of space. I like it. I think of everything we've got going on right now, that's a keeper. We should keep the line spacing that we have right now. Another thing I've learned from our times of self-isolation is that social distancing is just a concept you cannot explain to a child. We have our kids, and there have been just a couple of instances. Maybe we've been at a park, or one day we were walking our neighborhood, and we just ran into this other group of kids, which usually you'd be like, amazing, there's children playing together. They're not on their devices, but at this point, we're like, oh, everybody watch out. And just immediately, all the children started embracing each other. It was precious but we also know like possibly deadly at this time. So kids have a hard time understanding this concept of social distancing. Another thing I've learned in the past couple of weeks is that PALS is awesome. I already knew this, but I feel like I know this like even more. Our local Bristol people, you guys know what I'm talking about. Pals, when everything went crazy for other restaurants and they're like releasing statements saying, hey, we're drive-through only right now, like Pals was already ahead of the curve on there. They're already drive-through only. The only message they put out, they just changed that sign to say, thought of the day, wash your hands. And then when you go through Pals right now, I don't know if you've tried it recently, you go through Pals, they will at the end when you're paying, they'll offer to sanitize your card and they'll get out a little like antiseptic wipe and just clean your card like a little baby, which I go now to Pals just for that whole like endeavor, just for that moment. And I start handing them other cards like, hey, could you do my license also? Could you maybe do my Ollie's discount card? I would say like, if you haven't been to Pals yet, go just for the, the hand sanitizing of your card right there. And maybe if you get pulled over on the way because you're out when you're not supposed to be, like the officer, like when he gets your license, he'll see how clean it is and he'll say, oh, you must have been to Pals, move it along and you'll be fine there. So these are some things I've learned. Um, I've also learned during this time that maybe we don't understand the term sacrifice. I've seen this kind of thrown around a lot online with you know our social media and stuff. We have kind of... Um, maybe dumbed down a little bit, or we're starting to abuse a little bit the term sacrifice. And you'll hear people talking about how they're making such a sacrifice by staying at home in our air conditioning, in our pajamas, on our couch. That's my sacrifice. Like I'm saving the world. I will sacrifice this for the health and well-being of everyone else. I will be in the place that the rest of the time I'm dreaming about getting back to, but right now I'm going to be closed in. That's my sacrifice. Or another one with like, you know, the shelves being less stocked right now. I've seen people like you have to go with like the off-brand Pop-Tarts and that's your sacrifice. Like, oh, what a sacrifice. But I'll do this for the good good of humanity. I will sacrifice these Pop-Tarts. I know for me, I, uh, I went two days this week without deodorant. 
That was my sacrifice was we're not getting to the store as often because we're not going out as often. I ran out of deodorant. And so two days without deodorant, luckily six feet of space, right? Like you smell me, that's on you. Uh, Another one I've seen is there's um, another sacrifice people have had to make. There's a shortage in jigsaw puzzles. I don't know if you knew this right now. There's a shortage of jigsaw puzzles, which you didn't even want one until I said that. Now that you know there's a shortage of puzzles, you're wanting to go on Amazon and look up a puzzle right now. But no, we have to make the sacrifice of working an old puzzle we forgot we even had that we haven't seen for a decade. These are some of the things we're beginning to call sacrifices when really, I think what we mean is it's a bit of an inconvenience. It's an inconvenience for me right now to be working from home. It's an inconvenience for me to maybe not go with all the things I'm used to getting at the grocery store. These things are inconvenient. They're not necessarily sacrifices. And it's important that we understand this term of sacrifice because it is pivotal to who the person of Jesus is. And if we begin to kind of change around this term of sacrifice, we run the risk of kind of over-elevating ourselves, but then depreciating what an actual and true sacrifice is. So as we've gone through our Discover Jesus series, we're up to this characteristic of Jesus, that Jesus is the sacrifice. And I want us to really understand that today before we get into this concept. So to kind of understand what a sacrifice is, we have to go back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, this is where we first uh, really see sacrifice on a grand scale. And you see it, Matt mentioned it when we did communion earlier, we see it when Israel was in captivity in Egypt. So this whole nation of people is being held as slaves in Egypt, and God's not cool with that. So God calls Moses, and he says, Moses, go talk to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh it's time to let the Israelites go. But Pharaoh refuses. And so God sends nine different plagues against the Egyptians to show them, look, it's time to let Israel go. But each time Pharaoh refused. So if you've got your Bible, I want to pick it up there at the 10th plague. We have this 10th plague. It's going to be in uh, Exodus chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 5 through 7. And what's going on here is, is this 10th plague is going to sweep through the land. And God has said through Moses to Pharaoh that the firstborn child of every household will be killed if Pharaoh doesn't let the Israelites go. And of course, he doesn't. And so that night, what's going to happen is God's destroyer angel, is what the Bible calls it, is going to come through the land and kill the firstborn male of every household. And so in order to distinguish between the Egyptians and the Israelites, they are instructed to make a sacrifice. And here's what it tells us. Again, Exodus 12, verses 5 through 7. It tells us how the sacrifice is going to work. It says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then verse 7, it says, Then take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the linton of the houses in which they eat. And so what Moses instructs these Israelites to do is to take a lamb, a lamb without blemish, the firstborn lamb of its kind, to sacrifice this. And then from that blood, just use that blood like paint on your doorposts, on the sides of the door, and then on the top of the door. And then what this does is it differentiates the Israelites from the Egyptians. So that as God's angel goes over, he's going to know, no, these people have been identified as the children of God. These people are to be spared. There has been a death taken place. We see the blood. This identifies them as the children of God. So that's sort of this first place we see sacrifice on a grand scale. And then the Israelites, they were instructed after this, after they left Egypt, and when they entered into the promised land, they were instructed to remember this moment of Passover, to remember it through a meal, 
that we commemorated talking about when Jesus celebrated this meal with his disciples, that we every week gather together and have communion, it calls back to the Passover when there is a sacrifice of this lamb. But they're told not only to do this every year to have a Passover feast, a big celebration and a meal together, but they're also told that throughout the year, as they have a lamb um, or another piece of livestock or another animal, as an animal is born, the firstborn animal is always to be given to God. It should either be sacrificed to God or another animal should die to be redeemed in its place. And then God continues to talk about this. This is supposed to happen even with the firstborn children. They're not to be sacrificed, but another animal would be sacrificed in their place. So if you turn over a page in Scripture, you'll get to this chapter. If you look in Exodus 13, we're going to look at verses 14 and 15. And it says this right here. It says, when in, in, when in time and when in time to come, your sons asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us up out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, and the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn man and the firstborn of the animals, therefore I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb. But all the firstborn of my sons, I redeem. So right here we see this idea of sacrifice. First, it identified the Israelites. It identified them as children of God. But now we see this idea of redemption, that this is how we are bought back. That, man, we didn't deserve to keep our firstborn. God passed over. He took the firstborn, so we sacrifice another to be in the place of that. There's another spot we see in the Old Testament as things go further. If you went into Leviticus, you could look at this in uh, it's Leviticus uh, 16. You can see what the, the Bible talks about, what the Israelites celebrated of the Day of Atonement. Or Jewish people have carried it on. It's known as Yom Kippur now, and you see that on the calendar. This was the Day of Atonement. And what would happen here is another special sacrifice, probably the most significant sacrifice they would have all year, would take place. The high priest would take two goats, and on one goat, he would place his hands and he would pray and significantly place all the sins of Israel on the head of that goat. And so he'd pray the sins, he'd confess out the sins of this nation and, and symbolically place them on the goat. And then that goat would be sacrificed. And then the second goat that they would have, they'd do the same thing. They'd place their hands on it. They would pray. But then that goat would be released into the wild. The first one was known as the uh, the first goat was known as just the uh, sacrifice for atonement. The second goat was known as the scapegoat. And so right here we have this idea with these two sacrifices, again, that it's not just about our identification. It's not just about our redemption. It's about a substitution. This goat's death, who my, who my sins are now upon, he dies a substitutionary death in my place. And the other goat runs off showing that now my sins are gone. My sins have left me. And so we see through these Old Testament sacrifices how there is this idea that someone needs to be redeemed. Someone needs to be identified as a child of God. That someone needs a substitution for them. These are all important elements of sacrifice. And then when we get to the New Testament, we see Jesus become a new sacrifice. We see that it's no longer about lambs and goats. Now the Son of God comes as a sacrifice as a true sacrifice. And so you'll see in Colossians, it speaks of Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. Just as the lamb that was to die was to be the firstborn lamb. And then in Hebrews 9, 14, it speaks of Jesus as being without blemish, 
Just like that lamb, that animal that was to die was to be without blemish, your best animal. And then John 129, John the Baptist is coming through and he sees Jesus and he says, behold, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. In the New Testament, we start to hear that Jesus was the sacrifice, that Jesus was the firstborn, unblemished lamb of God. And so as we follow Jesus' stories, we see that he is betrayed after that Passover meal. He's arrested, and then he's put on trial. He's handed over to be executed, and then finally he is nailed to a cross to die. And the story picks up there with Jesus' sacrifice in Mark chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 33 through 38. It says, When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. That is a sacrifice. That is a true sacrifice. That Jesus, the son of God, emptied himself of heaven. That he left his heavenly throne and came to our earth. That he left the presence of God, the glory of God, to walk on our dirt. And then he lived as a man, not, not a mighty man, not a, a royal guy, but as a regular guy. And he lived with regular people. That was a great sacrifice for the creator of the universe to enter into creation. For the one who created life to then die. That's a sacrifice that Jesus brought, being the ultimate sacrificial lamb. The one without blemish, the one without an unbroken bone, if we get into the details of those sacrifices and know that Jesus had no bones broken in his torture and his sacrifice on the cross. And we see that all along God was working something throughout Israel to establish the idea of sacrifice, to then be fulfilled in his son. And I think it's worth pointing out if we go back to these ancient sacrifices that other cultures, their sacrifices were not done in this way. In an ancient culture, when a sacrifice was done, it was usually to maybe appease a god because there had been a plague or a famine. And so they're trying to figure out like, ah, oh, the gods are angry. Maybe it's because they're hungry. Maybe the gods are hangry and they didn't have Snickers bars back then. So they would sacrifice animals to be like a feast for the gods. So they would sacrifice animals or they'd maybe burn some grain or other food types of things, sometimes even humans to provide this feast for the gods to, to satisfy their appetites to hopefully then get rid of the famine or whatever else was happening. In other cultures, the idea was sacrifices to satisfy a need for the gods. But the sacrificial system that God set up in the Old Testament wasn't to satisfy a need for God because he has no needs. It was to satisfy our needs. And yet we see we carry those needs all along, even with all these animals that were being sacrificed. We still had sin. We still had death. But then God sends his son to die for us so that sin could be wiped away so that our sins could be gone, just like that goat running into the wilderness. 
so that one would die for us, identifying us as a child of God through his blood, redeeming us from our sins, giving a substitutionary death on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to die. That is the sacrifice that Jesus offered up for us. And it's pivotal to who Jesus is to understand that sacrifice. So as we've been going through this series and we've been talking about the aspects of Jesus, we have to discover the true meaning of sacrifice and how Jesus fulfilled that. When I was uh, in college, we, uh, we got to take a trip. My freshman class at King, we got to take a trip to Washington, D.C., and in this trip, a really cool thing happened. I wouldn't call myself, even today, I wouldn't call myself like an art buff or an art connoisseur. And I definitely wasn't my freshman year of college, but I knew some things. And I knew uh, one particular artist named Vincent Van Gogh, who actually celebrated a birthday this last Monday, March 30th. It was Van Gogh's birthday. Um, and I liked this guy. I think when I was in high school, one of my English teachers had like a poster of probably his most famous painting, A Starry Night on the Wall. And so I kind of got into Van Gogh that way. One time I even had a calendar of his, and I, I really enjoyed like seeing his paintings. There was one particular painting that caught my eye. It was called The Sower. I think we have a picture of it for you. And in this painting, like I just, I like the colors. I liked how what's going on is just this simple farmer spread some seed in a field. So I, I knew of Van Gogh. I liked Van Gogh, but then when I was on this trip in college, we got to go to the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., and I'm doing the stuff that I did, like goofing off in a museum, probably being too loud, uh, being the guy that everybody else like, that's serious about art and thinks hates. I'm with my buddies, you know, we're goofing off, posing for pictures with like the statues and just generally like making a ruckus. And then we turn this one corner and we get into this one room and there on the wall, I see a self-portrait of Vincent Van Gogh. And then I look next to it, and there is the actual, like, sunflower painting by Vincent Van Gogh. And I look in this room, and there's a whole display of paintings by Van Gogh. And there I see on the wall the sower. And I was stopped dead in my tracks. I'm not goofing off anymore now. I'm shushing people, and I'm just captivated by this painting. Because I had seen it, but I never experienced it. I'd seen it kind of in 2D where it was like flat and smaller on a calendar page, but now I see it in 3D and I realize how large it is. But then I realize the depth of that painting, something that I'd never seen before that maybe if you've not seen one of his paintings in person, you don't realize either. I found a picture of this painting up close that I hope we can show for you right now. And it really captures just a little bit that idea of the texture in this painting. That each color that you would see is like another glob of paint, and each glob of paint creates another brush stroke, and that creates a whole different set of movements within the painting. When I saw this, I was captivated, and I was stunned, because I knew of Van Gogh, but I'd never been in the presence of Van Gogh. And for me, that moment, I went from calling him Van Gogh to Van Gogh, like all the smart British people do. Now he's Van Gogh to me, because I know him better. Our hope, our goal with this Discover Jesus series, is that you would discover Jesus in that way. That you would go from just hearing about him to experiencing him. To not just knowing the stories about him, but knowing him in a personal way. Knowing that Jesus is, like we talked week one, that Jesus is the light. Knowing that Jesus is the restorer, the one who comes to heal us. Experiencing that Jesus is the servant who comes to serve us. Understanding that Jesus is the king, even though he served us. Understanding that even though he's a king, he's our friend. 
Our hope is, as we've been going through these aspects of Jesus, that you get to know Jesus, know those characteristics of him in a personal way because you have stood in the presence of Jesus. And sometimes I wonder if people who haven't really accepted Jesus, they'll hear this and then reject it, is maybe because they haven't experienced Jesus in that way. They've not stood in his presence. They've not really known him. They've just heard about him, which can be difficult today. How can we really get to know Jesus? How can we really get to experience this sacrifice when it took place thousands of years ago? Well, it happens, I think, through the followers of Christ. I think this happens through us, that as as we as Christians know that Jesus is the servant, we begin serving others, and through that, they experience Jesus. We as Christians, we become a friend to others as Jesus was a friend to us, and through that, they get to be in the presence of Jesus. We've seen that he is light, so we shed his light into the darkness. Through the Holy Spirit now inhabiting us, we get to be God's presence in our world. And so how can people experience Jesus in this way? I think it's the job of Christians. There was another time in our history, in AD 2250, another time in our history where just a plague had swept through the Roman world at this time. And this time for Christians in 250 was a really tough time. There's a lot of persecution going on from the Roman emperor, and Christians were dying for their faith. It was a tough time to be a believer in Christ. And in the same time, about 252, a plague swept through the the area of Rome, and many, many people died from it. I think it was either just the measles or could have been smallpox, but people were were dying in great numbers. At one point, about 5,000 people was estimated to be dying every day in the providence of Rome. And as this was happening, there were many that were realizing this disease was spreading from person to person, so they'd begin abandoning people infected by this disease out in the streets. They just began leaving family members for dead because they knew it was coming anyways, and they didn't want it to come for them. And you'd see some people would just leave their homes, and they'd flee, and they'd hide in the desert. And this is what was happening in that time. And there's a, a guy that lived in that time. His name is Dionysius of Alexandria. He was a Christian leader in the church of this time, and we have a letter of his from this year, talking about how Christians responded to this crisis in Rome. And he wrote this. He said, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounding love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless to the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely, happily. For they were infected by others with the diseases. We see right then how Christians, in a difficult time of persecution, responded to the very people that maybe had been persecuting them by taking care of them, by risking their health and their well-being to show others the love of Christ. What an example for us right now. And don't hear me saying that of like, I'm telling you to go find whoever has, you know, the virus going around right now, make sure you get it too and caring for them. But maybe it's just as small as keeping extra distance and saying, hey, I don't know if I'm infected. I'm going to pretend like I am just to keep you safe. Maybe it is calling that neighbor or, or seeing who you can check on and show, show the love of Christ. Show that Jesus is the light in this dark time. Show that Jesus is your king and you answered to him and not the fear of things going around right now so that others can be ushered into the presence of Jesus, so that others can know that he is the true sacrifice for them. And so here's my my challenge for the week. 
would be that some of us maybe just need to understand for the first time that Jesus is the true sacrifice for us. That for the first time, you need to realize that, man, I I cannot be identified as a child of God, but I want to be identified as a child of God. I've got sin and darkness in my life, and I need that, that substitute on my side. I need that sacrifice to redeem me from my sin. I need that substitutionary death that Jesus died for me so that I won't have to die a death of eternal separation from God. And if that's you this week, it's weird. Usually right now in our service, I'd say go back to our prayer room. We can't do that right now. But what you can do is you could just send us a message on Facebook. We'd love to talk to you about any questions you might have about faith in Christ. Or maybe you were pointed to this video just from a friend. Maybe they shared it or or told you about it. I would talk to that friend and say, hey, how can I have this sacrifice in my life? How can I have my sins redeemed? How can I have the substitutionary death of Jesus on my behalf? Talk to somebody about that. And for the rest of us, those who are following Christ, who have experienced his love and his life in our life, man, now our job is just to imitate it in this world to find some way this week that we can usher people in to the presence of Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you that you gave us your son as a sacrifice for our sins. And God, I pray you would show us this week, Christian and non-Christian alike, how much we need that sacrifice. What a huge sacrifice it was for the creator of the world to enter into creation for the person of Jesus to take on flesh and blood, to then have that flesh pierced and that blood spilled, to taste death so that we may have life. God, we thank you for that sacrifice and pray that you would make it very real to us this week and show us how desperately we need that. And then I pray, God, you would show us ways this week that we can imitate the love of Jesus in our world so that we can help other people come to discover Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.